This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Being a bad bitch is about going into these spaces, going into these experiences and realizing that you deserve to be there. This week, my guest is the award-winning journalist, social curator, and world changer, Travel Anderson. Travel always comes to slay, and in this episode, they did not disappoint. We discuss their dedication to making space for and centering those who do not always see themselves in the mainstream, as well as their advice for people in the margins. The important truth that Travel spoke of that I want to highlight is our problematic conceptions of identity that restrict us from achieving liberation. Here's our conversation. Well, Travel Anderson, welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. And also, before I start, I want to congratulate you for your permanent co-hosting gig on One A Day because I am a One A Day listener. Even though Thank I'm in you. London at the moment, I still listen to it. And so I know you're on Thursday mornings? Every Thursday morning. Okay. I'm ready for it. I love it. So congrats <laughs> on that. Thank you. Um. So the first question I always ask my guests is sort of about our resumes and how they're not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And I'm wondering what is missing from your resume that you think people should know about you? Oh, wow. Um, what is missing from my resume? You know what? <laughs> and for your listeners who don't know me, um, <laughs> this might sound very like cocky and egotistical and arrogant mm -hmm. and all of that, but it's fine. They'll get over it. Um, my resume does not detail how much of a bad bitch I am. Okay, that's okay. a valid answer. You know, I feel like the resume, it's all about the work, but it doesn't really tell you about like the impact of mm -hmm. said work. It doesn't tell you how a person shows up in a room, how they make space for other people. Um, and I feel like those are things that are like deeply important to me is to like show up as my full self, no matter what that means, right? To, and no matter who else is in, in the particular mm -hmm. space. And I feel like if you were to look at my resume, you would see somebody who works hard. Yeah. But like, wh what, what else is there beyond that? Um, and I, I happen to think I'm a bad bitch. I think I make space not only for myself, but for other people. Um, and I think that that is a, a great quality to have. <laughs> I do too. I agree. And also, you know, I haven't thought about it that way. And like the resume doesn't show the experiences we have to go through for those things to be on our resume. You know what I'm saying? Like the difficult exactly. things. So what you're saying, like if you're in a space where you're the only person that looks like you, I'm in a space, like what that means to us to be able to like go through that whatever internship, job, fellowship, so that we can mm -hmm. put it on our resume, like everyone else who just happened to be like in a room with people that look like them. Exactly, right? Those are the skills that we learn as like historically excluded people when we find mm -hmm. ourselves in these spaces that like you aren't necessarily able to translate onto a resume, right? That right. fight, that grit, that determination, that ability to navigate any situation and come out on top. We don't talk enough about, about those types of skills, right? Um, yeah. And how they, for many of us, they are like survival skills, right? They are tools that we have used to, to move through spaces and to create the lives that we have. Um, but they're deeply important, you know, if not more important than the actual jobs that we've had. Yeah, 
Um, so I know it's only 9 a.m., but I'd love <laughs> to know what you see as your purpose work, <laughs> you know? My purpose work at 9 a.m. in the morning. I think <laughs> that <laughs> I think that my purpose work is about it is about making space. It is about using whatever platforms that I have to allow people who look like me to see themselves reflected back to them in the fullness of their actual lived experience. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I was coming up as a non-binary trans person, and by the way, when I say when I was coming up, I'm talking about like five years ago, okay? Mm -hmm. um, when I was coming into my bad bitchery, what I like to call it, I did not have many like outlets that I could go to to see um, various possibility models of how life could could look and exist for me. Right. And so with my work, it is though journalism is at the core of it, every single thing that I write is about allowing folks to see themselves accurately and fully reflected back to them. It's about making sure that people know um, the the vastness of possibilities that lie ahead. Um, and it's about proving to myself, but also to others that, you know, that I deserve as well. Um, and for me, that manifests in terms of my, you know, articles writing about, you know, Black and Brown, queer and trans folks. Yep. It manifests in my advocacy work for journalists of diverse, diverse backgrounds. It manifests in, in, in every single aspect of, of my life. I think that's my, my purpose. Hey, we love that purpose. And, you know, I've, I've read your articles and they're great. And I think... Someone said that you have like the power of the pen. So there you go. You know, <laughs> that's what, that's what they tell me. Right. Okay? So I like, take and it I'm and run. To do what I can. Exactly. 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 Listen. All right. We are running as fast as we can. Like the Jamaican track folks. Okay. <laughs> we are doing what we can do. <laughs> um, so, okay. So in that question, you, you sort of mentioned, you know, being a person of trans experience and non-binary. And I sort of wonder, because I know that you went to Morehouse, which is an all male university. And I mm -hmm. wonder what your experience there was like. And I'm asking because, so I went to all girls school my entire life. Um, but my mother would never send my younger brother to an all boys school just because of sort of the like toxic masculinity that you, you know, that you see happening at, mm -hmm. at sort of all male schools. And, and I'm wondering what your experience was like at Morehouse. You know, I have a very complex and complicated relationship with Morehouse. Right. Um, while I, I love Morehouse, for what it gave me, for the community and the friends that it gave me, for for the foolishness that it put me through, that allowed me to to access this person that is currently in front of you. Super grateful for it. But the journey, um, being a budding queer person at the time, you know, slowly coming into my non-binaryness at the time, it wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. um, it's not easy for for 
I think most of the the queer, particularly if you are effeminate in your presentation, the trans folks who go to um, any uh, you know single single sex single gender institution that is the the history of which is like rooted in you know, these traditional conceptions of masculinity. And I would also say the traditional conceptions of femininity and womanhood um, and, and the ways in which, you know, religion is baked into the history of Morehouse College because it started off, right, Mm -hmm. as a seminary, um, you know, in teaching a lot of, you know, preachers and teacher type folks. Um, And so it wasn't easy, but there was a community of queer and trans people that I found um, at Morehouse while I was there. And I think we were able to support each other in the ways that meant the most to us. Um, When I was at Morehouse, that's when I started a lot of my journalism work. That's when I started a lot of my advocacy work, um, mainly because I wanted I wanted to create a space for myself where I could feel like I could be my full self and not be encumbered by, you know, the homophobia or the transphobia, not be encumbered by, you know, the toxic masculinity, as you've mentioned. Um, You know, it was, I look back on it now and I can say and I can and access those those positive moments, mm-hmm. but it wasn't always positive, you know, in in the experience. And there there were, you know, I had issues with professors, I had yep. issues with other students. I I was an RA, so then I also had issues with the the young, yeah. you know, the new students that were coming in because they've never, you know, met a gay person at that time in their life, right? And now this this queer person is is their boss, their mm-hmm. leader for all intents and purposes. As you can imagine, yeah. that created some issues with people. And I'm sure there's like anti-black racism that's happening sometimes too. Like I used to live in Atlanta and you know, I love Atlanta, but like everyone is not black. Mm-hmm. So sometimes things happen. And the, and the people who are black have a very fine, sometimes have a very finite idea of what blackness is, what right. it looks like, how it should show up. You don't sound black. Mm-hmm. You don't talk like you're black. All of, yes, mm-hmm. I know, yeah, you, I know and, that and very we ha- well. And we have mm-hmm. those people, right, who feel like, you know, you can't be black and queer, or like you have to choose one over mm-hmm. the other. You have to be black first, right? The All of these, um, requirements right that are placed on us as a means of like validating or invalidating our blackness all of that is kind of hyper focused when you're in an hbcu environment where everyone is navigating their relationship to their blackness to their sexuality to their Mm -hmm. gender even though they may not know that's what they're doing right and so you're you're in an experience and you're in a place where literally everyone is is growing and developing and changing um but the ways in which your experience might challenge someone else's isn't always um welcomed it's not always a welcomed experience by folks 100 percent um okay so you mentioned that you you know you started your journalism while you were at morehouse but 
how did you get into journalism and specifically entertainment journalism? Like what, what drew you to it? Yeah, um, you know, so I should say that I, I was on the school newspaper in high school for like a year, but it wasn't really like, you know, legit. I was just doing it because the professor told me that I should, <laughs> you know? Um, and then when I got to Morehouse, I continued writing for the school newspaper, eventually became managing editor of the school newspaper, The Maroon Tiger. But I initially went to school thinking that I was going to be a lawyer, okay? Mm. L. Woods in Legally Blonde was my, <laughs> you know, my possibility model. I wanted to tiptoe into a courtroom in all pink and, you know, shut it down. Um, but, you know, I took a couple classes that were required for the pre-law designation and I was like, oh, this is not it. This is, she's not that girl that I she thought that she too. was. I did that too. I did that too. not for me. Torts? <laughs> Torts. Mm, no, probably not. Listen, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. It was too much. So I changed my major like 12 times, eventually settled on sociology. But by the time senior year came, the most consistent thing in my collegiate career was working on the newspaper. Okay. And so I said to myself, well, let's try this out. Try this on for size. Decided to go to grad school. I went to Stanford for my uh, master's in journalism. Um, and then from there, you know, I knew that I wanted to tell stories about Black folks. I wanted to tell stories about queer people. Um, I got my first job out of grad school at the Los Angeles Times in a fellowship, like a diversity fellowship program situation. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought I was going to go there and that I was going to do these great local stories about Los Angeles's Black communities and queer communities. And I was told by somebody in that fellowship, somebody who was overseeing us in that fellowship, an editor who still works at the LA Times, by the way, that you know, there weren't enough black people in Los Angeles for what? there to be more than one person, for there to be more than one person reporting on um, South LA, which is, is the code language for, for the blacks. Mm -hmm. um, and there wasn't enough queer people and trans people in LA for there to be more than one person covering West Hollywood, which was code for the, LGBTQ. Yeah. Which LA are we talking about? LA, California, or is this LA, Tokyo? Like I'm, missing, <laughs> I'm not sure. It did not make sense to me. But again, I'm at the start of my career where like I wasn't really walking in my right. full brilliance at the time. So I took his feedback and I was like, okay, what other sections of this newspaper might be interested in my Black queer perspective? And the entertainment section of the Los Angeles Times, they were super into it because they did not have anyone, you know, covering Tyler Perry movies with any sort of, you know, rigor. Mm -hmm. They did not have anyone whose sensibilities were attuned to what Black folks and queer folks are interested in. So I just kind of slowly started doing work in the entertainment section during that fellowship. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the fellowship, I got hired on full time and just continued doing that work. I, I tell people often that Oscar So White gave me job security yeah. because I feel like the LA Times, you know, when, when that whole situation went down, the LA Times was able to say, oh, we have this person who's been doing these diversity stories already we need to keep them around because mm -hmm. diversity is the name of the game in terms of the coverage. Um, and so I say that's how I got my full-time job out of that fellowship. And then since then, it's been a, a journey in terms of like, for me, 
bringing kind of my sociological imagination, my perspective into the reporting that I'm doing so that when you're reading my feature stories, when you're reading my profiles, hopefully you feel like you're getting a little something different than Mm -hmm. all of the other stories that you see out there with this particular person. That's one of my goals. You know, what's interesting, what you said about sort of like the job security is it's, it's, you know, like all these black authors who are writing about race and social justice, who then, you know, a black person gets killed and all of a sudden all this money rushes to them because everyone's buying the book, which is not great because, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want money because someone got killed. Period. But also, okay, great that you are going to be reading, we hope <laughs> at least. Um, and I feel like, you know, I feel like a lot of people probably experience what you just said about that. Like, Yes, that is how people get big checks for a book about racism, because otherwise y'all weren't going to read about it. Yeah, I mean, that's what we see happening right now in the journalism industry, right? Every single publication, they have race beat reporters now, Mm -hmm. right? Because of the incessant killings of Black people, because of the summer of quote-unquote racial reckoning last year, you know, all of these news outlets now are investing in folks who report on race, who report on culture, who report on gender. Um, And we're seeing simultaneously Black people, and a lot of Black women in particular, being finally promoted to those top ranks of the masshead of those publications. And so it's a complex situation because on the one hand, all of these people are super deserving and super talented and they deserve all of these opportunities that are coming to them. Mm -hmm. But we also can't ignore that, you know, that the reason why they're finally being able to break these glass ceilings, they're finally getting these opportunities is because the white people are guilty and (laughs) they're now trying to course correct for their foolishness. And so it's all super complex and complicated. And you're sort of always on the back foot when it's like reactionary instead of like, let's like make these actions ahead of time and bring these people in. Um, exactly. What you said about, you know, this person who was overseeing you at the LA Times and how they're still there sort of connects to my next question because, you know, there these conversations are happening all around Hollywood about centering more than just the sort of like white cisgender heteronormative standard, as I say in mm-hmm. quotes, as people, you know, believe is the standard. Um, And I'm wondering, do you think like there was like real desire to change this from the people at the top or are they just sort of like paying a lip service to keep the rest of us happy who want this diversity or like is it a mix of both? You know, I, I think it's a mix of both. I do think that there are, you know, the well-meaning white allies who are trying to be, you know, accomplices in this work of diversifying Mm -hmm. Hollywood. But I think it's also important for us to recognize that like Hollywood is a game of money, okay? And whatever sells is what these executives will do. And black people spend money. Period. But the thing is, Black people have always spent money. Mm -hmm. We're not just spending money now. Mm -hmm. The the, the situation at hand is that historically, there are all of these these myths in Hollywood about Black-focused content and about Black audiences in terms of what we're interested in, right? And so it's created this myth. We call it the the Black films don't travel myth, which is the idea that your Black-led movie or TV show 
won't do well in an international market where so much money can be potentially made. And so therefore, you're not going to even green light it for your US audience because you can't, you feel like you can't make money on it internationally, right? But time and time again, there have been examples of black content that have done amazingly overseas, black actors and actresses who have huge fan bases mm -hmm. overseas. And so I say that and mention that to say, hopefully, the continual debunking of that myth demonstrates to the folks in these C-suites that actually diversity sells, diversity pays. There have been so many studies, particularly over the last three to five years, that have put a dollar amount on you know, the importance of diversity and shown the ways in which a franchise like, you know, the Fast and the Furious franchise, one of the reasons why it is so huge is because it is so diverse, mm -hmm. right? And different types of people can see themselves represented in the different types of characters, right? One of the reasons Black Panther was as huge as it was is because we had never seen anything like that on screen before. The hope is that the people in the C-suites are seeing all of that and that they are beginning to, even if it is purely just a financial motivation, they are beginning to give people who look like us yeah. the opportunity to tell our stories in the way that we want to tell them. Whether or not they really care about it, you know, I, I don't know if I care that they care. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that there are opportunities being had. And as there are opportunities for more content to, to show up, there are also going to be more opportunities for those black and brown, queer and trans folks who want to be in the C-suite to get those opportunities to do so as well. And I think that's how we end up overall changing and shifting this industry is by making sure that the people who are more aligned with the types of content we want to see, that they are getting into these C-suite positions mm -hmm. as well. 100%. And, you know, since we're on a podcast, mm -hmm. I think we need to talk about your podcast, Fanti. Yeah. Could you share the premise and some examples of like what Fanti, like what it means? Yes. So Fanti is a podcast that I host with uh, my good friend, Jared Hill, who's a, a politics journalist and screenwriter and all of the fabulous things. We basically created this word Fanti when we were coming up with this show. It's a portmanteau of fan and anti. Mm -hmm. And it's all about having complex and complicated conversations about the people, places, and things that you are big fans of, but also have some anti-feelings toward. Okay. And so we've done conversations on Tyler Perry, for example. I'm somebody who grew up on Tyler Perry mm -hmm. plays in particular in Tyler Perry movies. It's one of the ways that I was able to bond with my grandmother who was his <laughs> biggest fan, right? But we all know that Tyler Perry should not be writing his own script. Right, like what's we happening in the writer's room there? <laughs> is there a writer's room? Like, is there one? What's happening there? Exactly. And there isn't one, right? Maybe he should not be making movies in seven days. Like, it's great that you can do it, but why are you doing right. it, right? And so we have a conversation like that on our show. Or we, one of my favorite episodes that we've done was about our relationship to gospel music and our relationships to the church as Black queer people, mm -hmm. right? Delving into the particulars and intricacies of that. We've had conversations about colorism on the show, about, um, about gender yeah. on the show. Um, we, we, what we try to do is, 
you know, take these conversations that you might be having around the kitchen table or in your group messages and put them in a place where there is no judgment or let's say light judgment for how, okay, just a little. For how you might feel or come to, you know, let's not lie to the people, okay? <laughs> there, there, <laughs> there's sometimes a, a little judgment, but working through our particular feelings, not as a means to answer or come to some sort of final feeling or, 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 or resolution about a situation, but as a means of recognizing that like, sometimes you can't throw away the Cosby show or a different world because Bill Cosby is a trash human being. Right. You know, sometimes you've got to, you got to figure out a way to, to still, you know, love the art and then just divorce it from the artist, you know, those types of conversations. Yeah. Like add nuance because we're all, you know, intelligent beings that can like add some nuance to our life. Exactly. And that nuance is important. Okay. I do have one that I'm wondering if you guys have discussed. I love me. Rihanna. <laughs> but are we discussing how we feel about billionaires? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? So I we have not done that topic yet. But Am I gonna get in trouble? Am I gonna get in trouble for saying that? Because like I love her, but like again, billionaires. Listen, there are some people who we want to have a conversation about on our show, but we haven't done it yet because we know that the people will riot, okay? They the will people come will for get you. Up, listen, okay? And so we haven't done it yet, but we have, we've hinted at that conversation in particular okay. about like, we love Rihanna or we love Beyonce, you know, but... Mm -hmm you know, the capitalism of it all is is a little, yeah. you know, itchy, you know? Like, do you like, really need mm -hmm. that much more money, <laughs> you know? Yeah, or like Jay-Z, that is, you do so much good, but are you sure this new investment thing is like actually helping black people or is it just another? Oh my God. Right? We we were going to do, I don't know if you remember when when Jay-Z announced like his deal or whatever with the NFL, his relate, oh, working relationship that. with the NFL. Mm -hmm. We we didn't end up doing an episode, but we did do a section, a segment on the show talking about just kind of the the odd nature of that relationship. We all have been protesting yep. and boycotting the NFL for the last year and a half. And you just go come out of nowhere and, and make a deal, you know, with the oppressor. What are you doing? Right. And then everyone everyone <laughs> says like, just wait, just wait and see what happens. Like when you like comment about it and you're like, but like, how long, what am I waiting mm -hmm. for? What do you mean wait and like, what am I waiting for? <laughs> I've, like, I'm yeah, so waiting you wanna, now. You want me to wait until? Exactly. Yeah. You want me to wait until until they prove me right? You know, yes. like mm -hmm. we all okay. know what this game is. We know what this capitalism thing is. But yeah, those are the types of conversations that our show is all about doing from a, a specific like black queer perspective, right? We center blackness, we center queerness, we center transness. Um, and, and we're just, we try not to be as concerned with with whiteness and the ways that mm -hmm. it, you know, corrupts so much about our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so everyone go listen to Fanti. There may be one on yes. some of the topics we just discussed, but don't come at us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking of people coming at us, I'm wondering, 
what has sustained you in difficult moments, you know, and like in tough times, what sort of like keeps you going on your purpose work um, in, in being your true self? Like what, what maintains you? Um, you know, this is a tough question because the whole, you know, I know we're, we're, we're in this, in the middle of this like self care, self love mm -hmm. movement, but it is something that I struggle with because I'm a workaholic. Um, and because I know very much the, the, the transformative power that like media can have for folks, because I know the impact that it's had specifically for me and wanting to ensure that, you know, those many representations and opportunities that are out there for folks to see themselves, to see other possibilities of, of living and showing up and moving through the world, making sure that they're as expansive as possible, because, you know, the life that I have now, I would have never imagined based off of the the people who I grew up around and the types of media that I had access to. And so I think for me, you know, there's a, there's a poem that I often revisit that I find deeply motivating. Um, I actually have the book that it's in next to me. It's a Lucille Clifton poem. Mm -hmm. And the name of the poem is, I think it's technically untitled, but we all just use the the first line of it, which is, won't you celebrate with me? Um, and it goes, won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model, born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight, my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Mm. And I find that super affirming and super motivating because so much about my life is self-made because I did not have those, those representations. I did not have people that I could talk to about being a journalist that is black and non-binary and trans right i did not have i didn't have trans community right to tell me and and advise me on how to um you know how to love my body right how to comport myself in the ways that are most affirming and ensure safety and so that poem when I'm when I'm having a tough time, I revisit that poem as a means of like remotivating myself, of recognizing the journey that I've been on, the things mm -hmm. that I've been through, and the fact that all of the foolishness that has come up against me, it has failed because because I'm here. Right. And I'm doing the damn thing. And I am a bad bitch all at once, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Are there are there people who have inspired you? Um, so my my two possibility models that I often talk about, though I have complex relationships with these individuals, are Andre Leon Talley who, for those who don't know, was a legendary um, editor at Vogue, the highest ranking Black person for a long time at Vogue. Yeah. Uh, I first came to his brilliance when he was a judge on America's Next Top Model. 
um, and seeing him take up space in the way that he took up space as a big black presence With was big deeply affirming and motivating. Everything, honey. Okay, <laughs> the briefcases, the the calf tans. You know, there's just so much about Andre Leon Telly that is larger than life, and that connected with the the young queer budding non-binary person deep down in my spirit. And then the second person, also somebody of America's Next Top Model fame, was Miss J Alexander, yes. a longtime runway diva extraordinaire, coach, fabulous individual. Um, who is, who exhibits kind of a gender nonconformity in how they take up space. Um, both of them were the first time that I saw real people, like at, not characters on TV, not, you know, comedians doing a bit, but they're the first times that I saw real people who, who just showed a little bit of what life could be like. Um, if if and when I was able to like come into myself, affirm myself and and be that, you know, fully and express all of that out loud. So those are the two that are kind of my have always been my long term possibility models. And then in terms of contemporarily, I think of just I look out at the the vastness of in particular, Black, queer and trans people who are like mm -hmm. taking up space, who are doing the damn thing, who are like pushing the bounds of 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 what we know to be as possibilities those are the folks that i find you know deeply inspiring so like whether that's raquel willis whether that's janet mock whether that is um michael street whether that mm -hmm. is um you know uh Fanny redwood whether that is you know these people that i know i've come to know their brilliance um, and their unique lens and vantage on life that I think is deeply instructive and motivating. Alok, Alok Vayed Manan is another, you know, non-binary person in particular whose work I find deeply invigorating and, and aspirational. Mm -hmm. And I, okay, I imagine that you are, you know, a possibility model for some people. And so I wonder if you have, a, you know, a piece of advice that you would share with people who are in the margins and don't see themselves represented in the mainstream yet? Um, you know, so one of, one of the main pieces, I do a lot of, you know, talks with like young journalists right. and creatives. And one of the things that I often say to them, but I think anybody, no matter where they are in their life experience can take something away from is, be a bad bitch, but be open to critique. Yeah. You know, I feel like as as young people, as queer people, as Black people, as women in films, we often find ourselves in spaces doing stuff that we that other people don't think we can handle that other people don't think we can accomplish right we find ourselves in these spaces with people, you know, giving us the side eye <laughs> and being like, do you deserve to be here, right? Mm -hmm. And so being a bad bitch is about going into these spaces, going into these experiences and realizing that you deserve to be there, that everything that you have done in your life has led you to this particular point and you absolutely deserve. But be open to critique because even the baddest bitch can learn something, right? right? To make you even more bad, right? And so I, I find that that can be deeply instructive because 
we need to affirm ourselves when we go into these spaces, when we are the lonely only in these spaces. But we also need to recognize that some of these old white motherfuckers who have been here forever, they can teach you something that you can then freak and turn to your own benefit right. as you continue on in your career. So that's the, the main piece of advice that I like to share. Be a bad bitch, but be open to critique. I think it's perfect. It's like, yes, go into these spaces and be confident in like you getting there and being in the room and, and you know, like sort of sending that imposter syndrome to the side, mm-hmm. but like don't close off to what you could be, you're supposed to be learning in these spaces. I like that. Exactly, exactly. Everything, everything is about, you know, everything's a plot toward your next opportunity, mm-hmm. okay? And so even if you are in a space and, you know, the white motherfuckers are getting on your nerves because they are discounting your abilities, they're discounting your voice, they're discounting what you bring to the table, figure out what things you can learn while you're in that, that will set you up for your next opportunity, right? That will allow you to be even more secure. And when you reach that point, it'll allow you to negotiate better. It'll allow you to speak up and take up more space better. It will, it will, I think it will have an overall transformation in how you move through space. If you go in thinking you are being that bad bitch, but also being open to critique and learning and growth. 100%, 100%. So what would you say is your greatest fear for humanity? Oh my God. (laughs) Um, My greatest fear for humanity. You know, I'm going to use this opportunity to get on my soapbox and talk about the, the cell that is gender, the prison that is gender. Okay. And what I mean by that is we are all moving through this world in ways that we don't even realize are uh, a restriction on ourselves Mm -hmm. because we are trying to be that ideal image of a man or that ideal image of a woman, not realizing the ways in which those conceptions don't allow us to actually live in our full brilliance. They don't allow us to actualize the fullness of our um, humanity because we feel like, you know, men aren't supposed to show emotion. Right. Or we feel like women aren't supposed to have, you know, facial hair. Or we feel like, you know, trans people are an abomination and a creation of, you know, a Hollywood writer's room or the back alleys in New York City, right? We, we, we have these ahistorical conceptions about how we are supposed to show up in the world. And we don't realize the ways in which every single societal ill that we are talking about can be traced back to our problematic conceptions of identity, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Particularly when it comes to gender. And so, you know, if you are able to liberate yourself from the manhood that you thought and that you were taught to uphold, if you're able to liberate yourself from the womanhood uh, and and the femininity that you were taught to aspire to. And for my, you know, non-binary and trans folks, if we continue to liberate ourselves 
from all of those conceptions um, and all of that indoctrination that took place that told us how we were supposed to show up and move through the world. On the other side of that is freedom. It mm -hmm. is liberation. All of these conversations that we're having right now about freedom work, about movement work, about, you know, trying to get our people free, we also have to free ourselves from the confines of gender. And so my fear is that we will not confront gender for the colonialist white supremacist project that it is. Um, my fear is that we will continue to move through the world and make non-binary and trans people feel as if we are some aberration of humanity as opposed to the divine beings that we are. Um, and my hope and my goal, right, is that as folks are challenged by the ways and the freedoms that they see us as non-binary and trans folks exhibiting and tapping into, that they will find what freedom looks like for them, yeah. that they will liberate themselves um, from, from all of the strictures that our white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist society has foisted upon us. Um, and they will discover a world different that holds all of us as much as possible. 100%. Also what you know what you're saying makes me think of as you as you said like the things that we don't even think about about how we are affected by gender. I read an article maybe 2 days ago that was talking about how when we read something if someone puts she or her before he him or mm -hmm. if they they speak of something like the president or a leader and they and they write it in the feminine that it pauses us and we like get delayed in our reading because we're like confused as to how this is a woman. Mm -hmm. And so like when my mom speaks about God, she always says she and you know, people will be like, What? Exactly. And I'm like, girl, just keep doing it. Just, just keep, keep, like, doing keep doing it. it. Because why are we assuming God is a she? Period. And right, we often don't think I feel like when we talk about you know, homophobia and transphobia to be specific, you know, we we always can see how those conversations are related to gender, but we often right. feel as if homophobia and transphobia only impacts queer and trans people. We don't recognize the ways in which our homophobia and our transphobia actually impacts heterosexual identified people right. and cis identified people as well, because it reifies you know, these these boxes that, that folks are supposed in. to. Yeah. Exactly. And the ways yeah. that we're supposed to communicate and the things that are deemed right and plausible and the things that are deemed aberrations, right? Mm -hmm. But if we if we begin to realize how you know, an individual's transphobia does not only impact trans people, but it also necessarily dictates how I am supposed to show up in the world as well. I think that is when we will begin to see greater accountability, right? Right now in our culture, you know, Bootsy Badass is out here saying his foolishness, talking about Lil Nas X, right? <laughs> the baby is per perpetuating oh, HIV stigma. All of these conversations are happening right now. And we think that it's targeted at LGBTQ folks, not realizing the ways in which all of these isms and obias is what I call them, how mm -hmm. all of these isms and obias literally impact every single living human being on this planet and 
if you don't rid yourself personally and your space of homophobia and transphobia, you will never be free. You will never get to that promised land that you say you are working toward because your liberation is necessarily linked to mine. Mm -hmm. And if I, as a Black, queer, non-binary person of trans experience, can't be free, you, as that Black man or that Black woman, will never be free either. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so the flip of that is, what is your greatest hope for humanity? My greatest hope for humanity. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can, I, the, the funny part is, I can do the pessimistic thing very easily. Like, I can tell you what the fuck is wrong very easily. The, the idea of hope, you know what? My hope for humanity I'm going to speak directly to my non-binary and trans siblings. Mm-hmm. And my hope for, for, for them, for us, is that we will see the promised land that we specifically are working toward, that we will be affirmed in our fullness, that we will be able to move through the world without fear of of whatever violence is being enacted upon us. That is my hope um, for, for queer and trans people specifically. Um, and then for the folks who aren't queer or trans, who aren't non-binary or gender non-conforming, my hope is that y'all get out of the way and allow us <laughs> to fully unfold into our brilliance. That is my hope. I need people to move, All right. okay? Mm-hmm. And let us queer and trans people drag you to that possibility that you don't even know exists because you're caught up in, you know, being that man and being that woman that you were told that you were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Let us drag your ass to liberation, you know, so that you can see the beauty of the imaginations that we have um, and the possibilities that we create every day by our mere existence. That is my hope. I will let you drag me there. Like, I'm down. <laughs> I'm down. I'm down. It might be a little hard now. You know, I want to be clear. It's not going to be an easy road. There might be some bumps in the road. Right. You know, you might hit your head every now and again. But I promise but you. Isn't that I like, care. you know? Period. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, Travel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I like had the greatest time speaking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Marketing and digital growth, Kayla Gillis. And partnerships, Natalie Hope.